Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Lord, we thank you for this this week and uh, with all of its trials, all of its difficulties, but all of its graces. And Lord, as we come off a week where Monday we, we spent some time thinking about those who had, have fallen, have protected our nation on Memorial Day, and thinking about the sacrifices they made, we pray, Lord, that this week and the coming weeks and to come, Lord, that you would be blessing those families that have lost uh, sons and daughters. Um, there's some of us uh, have very close friends that have lost family members to, to serve our nation, and we are thankful for that sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, be there for those who are sorrowful and hurting. No, Lord, we know that you're near to the brokenhearted, and we pray, Lord, that not just on that day, but throughout the year, Lord, that you would help us to be a blessing to families that we know that are hurting from that sacrifice. And Lord, as we get into your word, Lord, we, are, we get into your word with anticipation. We get into your word with anticipation knowing that this, these are your very words. These are your very words that your spirit inspired. And not only did your spirit inspire this word, but you come here and you meet with us and you open it for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open your word for us, that you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that you would make this word to our hearts clear and helpful and powerful and convicting and nourishing and encouraging and hope-giving and alive to us, Lord. Your word comes alive when your spirit opens our eyes to believe and receive it. We pray that you would do that. We pray, Lord, as we gather together and we use our gifts with each other afterwards and encouragement and prayer and all the various gifts that are here, Lord, we pray that we would, like Hebrews say, taste the powers of the age to come, Lord. This is a special time when you meet with your people, and we're so thankful for it. We're thankful that you, you got us this far this week to gather here and receive. And we pray that it would be all for your glory, all for your honor, all for your fame. We pray that our boast would be in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here we are. We're in Galatians 6, and uh, we're at the end of our series called Finally Free. And we've been looking at how um, when we trust in Christ, when we first come to trust in Christ, we are freed from the penalty of our sin. We receive full forgiveness. You receive full pardon for your entire life when you come to receive Christ. You, you turn from your sin and you trust in him. And then we have also been talking about how we're freed gradually by a process from the power of sin. So we, we're freed from the penalty of sin immediately, and then we're freed from the power of sin over time. And it turns out that one of the ways God frees us is by applying the, the gospel to every situation of our lives. And Paul is ending this text, and I'll read it as I go, but he's ending Galatians 6, where he's unpacked the gospel for them, and now he's going to leave it, the gospel with them for them to believe and apply. And we can tell in verse 17 that Paul intends this to be the end of his conversation with them. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's like, we're done here. <laughs> He's like, I've given you the gospel. I've said what I needed to say. Now, this is for you to take and for you to apply and for you to live out and for you to live it out in community together. And some people see this last chapter of Galatians, Galatians 6, as kind of being a random set of verses. And you can kind of feel that way, that it's almost Proverbsy, where it's one thing and another thought, and then maybe they don't relate. Uh, and some people have that perspective on it, that it's almost like, you know, you got the kitchen junk drawer full of things, and he's got all these random thoughts he forgot to throw in. He puts them all at the end. I don't think that's what's going on here. 
And I don't think that's what's going on here because he's so urgent in tone. We'll see as we get in here. He's urgent. He's urgent many times in Galatians, but he's very urgent here at the end. And I don't think you're urgent when you're throwing out all your last random thoughts. Uh, He's urgent because he has one theme. And the theme that I see in here is that the theme of how do we live out the gospel as a community? as a church family, as people that have covenanted to live out the Christian life together, what kind of community should the gospel create in a local church? How should the gospel affect our relationships together as we live out the Christian life together? And I've got four things I want to look at in this chapter, that as a church family shaped by the gospel, we value humility over pride, grace over judgmentalism, burden-bearing over isolation, and boasting in God's work, not our own. So those will be the four things that I'll go through really quickly. Firstly, um, applying the gospel or relationships means that we value humility, not pride. Take a look um, actually at the end of verse, uh, chapter 5 and verse 26. It's, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So he has here that, that, we, that the gospel destroys pride. That's the first thing the gospel does in the church is it destroys our pride. And what's interesting from that passage is there's two forms of pride in that verse. Do you see him? He says, don't be conceited, provoking each other and envying each other. There's actually two forms of pride there. There's kind of the, the strong form of pride, the superiority of provoking each other, where you feel superior to other people. That's a form of pride, uh, where you provoke others. It's a strong form. And then there's the weak form, right? Envying. Envying is actually a form of pride. It doesn't look like pride because it's, it's a, uh, like an inferiority type thing, but it is pride as well. It's, it's feeling that we're inferior to others. And he's saying here that all pride makes the same mistake. And the, the same mistake that all pride makes is pride causes us to turn in on each other. One of the uh, theological things about sin is that it causes us to curve in on ourselves, to look at ourselves, to focus on ourselves and not to focus on Christ. And that's what pride does. But the gospel, guys, frees us from pride. Frees us from pride by saying that the greatest thing about you is not something you've achieved, it's something you've received. That's super important. If you think about your life, and we all do this, we all think like, what reason do I have to live? Make a list. The greatest thing about you is something that you have not achieved but received as a gift. The greatest thing about your life is that you've been adopted by God. Take a look at, again at Galatians 4, uh, 5. I know I keep bringing this up. Galatians 4, 5 says this, that, he's, that he sent his son to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. That what happens in the gospel is that God sent his own son, become a man, die for our sins to redeem us, to pay the penalty of our sins and forgive us, but not to stop there, but to adopt us as his own kids. The gospel is ultimately about adoption. So it's propitiation, it's removing God's wrath, it's, it's forgiveness, it's justification, it's all those things. But ultimately so that we can be God's very beloved sons and daughters. By the cross, you are now, if you're trusting in Christ, God's beloved son or daughter. And, and, and it's really important that you guys get this because what this tells you is that God doesn't just forgive you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He likes you. And I think a lot of Christians have a hard time with that. They go like, okay, well, I could kind of understand that, you know, through the cross, yeah, that, that should work. I've been forgiven, you know. I don't have to be afraid. The gospel says more, that he loves you and adores you as he loves and adores his own son. When we talk about sonship, when we talk about um, being adopted by God, he has given us a place that his son has in his affections. He doesn't just forgive you and tolerate you. And I think we all kind of feel that way. Like on a good day, we feel forgiven and tolerated. Okay, but the gospel says something more. He likes you. He loves you. And you know what that is? It's all a gift. It's all grace. 
Because, you know, we grow up in this kind of culture, we go, of course God likes me. Look at me. No, 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 no. No, we have no reason in ourselves for God to like us. That Jesus has paid the penalty of our sins so we can be adopted and have it as a gift, right? And so believing that makes you both confident and humble. It makes you confident and not envious because you're God's kid. What do other people have that you should be envious of? What do they have that's better than your adoption that you have in Christ? Nothing, right? So the gospel destroys envy, but the gospel also destroys the strong form of pride too, right? Because we're humbled because we had nothing to do with our adoption. I mean, if you even think about the metaphor, the metaphor is a father comes and adopts a child. Who's in charge? The father is. The father has done it all for you. It's all grace. The gospel kills both forms of pride. So the only thing we can boast in and the only thing we can, we can uh, take pride in is the greatness of our God. You know, he talks about later boasting in the cross alone, and that destroys our pride. So the gospel makes us confident and humble community because our focus is on Christ, not ourselves. It frees us from pride. Second, uh, a church that's shaped by the gospel will value grace, not judgmentalism. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Brothers and sisters, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Um, This is a great and important passage, but there's some misunderstandings you could have in reading it. The first one is, it says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, this doesn't mean that you caught him, okay? It's not like you're the sin police and you're like, whoop, 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 you know, like, what do you got there, you know? That's not what this is. When it's talking about caught here, it's not like I caught you in sin. It's you're caught in sin, okay? You're caught in a snare. You're caught in a trap. And, and a brother or sister got caught in sin. The sin caught them like a snare or like a trap. And then he says here, he says, you who are spiritual. We could think like, okay, like, who are they? You know, like, that's a special class of believers, right? The spiritual ones. Let's, we need a spiritual guy over here, you know? There's somebody caught. No. What spiritual means in the context, if you look at chapter 5, we know exactly what spiritual means. It means those who walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. The context tells us who you who are spiritual are, and it's, and it's when we're in a state of happily yielding to the Spirit's desires, right? And we can be in that state as believers anytime we repent, okay? That isn't something you graduate to. That's something you go in and out of. Sometimes you're being real fleshly. Sometimes you're walking in the Spirit. And what he's saying here is, when you're real fleshly, don't try to do this, okay? What you need to do is you repent, you, you, you happily yield to the Spirit's desires, and then you're ready, right? You can be ready quick. All we need to do is come to the Lord, repent of our sin, and, and move forward, right? And then he says that what we're to do when we see somebody caught in a trespass is restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Um, this is exceedingly rare. I don't know if you guys realize this. Restoring people in a spirit of gentleness is exceedingly rare. It's exceedingly rare if you have both very high standards and you gently restore people who fail them. That combination, it's easy to have like super low standards and be gentle with people, right? It's very hard to have high standards and also be incredibly gentle when you um, restore people. And, you know, we often think of religious judgmentalism, you know, because, you know, you have high biblical standards, and, 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 but no gentleness in restoring people. So we think about, like, you know, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, or we think about, like, you know, churches that say, oh, you know, they, they shoot the wounded, you know? Like, you know, somebody's wounded, so bam, you know? Like, and there's just this heavy-handedness, right? But, guys, our secular culture also doesn't restore people gently. You guys realize that? Our secular culture has very clear standards of their own, you guys ever heard of the term virtue signaling? 
kind of a newer term. Virtue signaling is the idea that, that, that kind of in our culture, if you, if you want to be accepted, you need to um, publicly express opinions to uh, demonstrate that you have good character or you have good, you know, you have good moral correctness of your position. And so we see that a lot on social media where people will like, you know, on the right day, you got to post the right thing, you know, the right news event, you got to be on the right side of that. It's called virtue signaling. You're saying like, I'm virtuous, don't worry. You know, I'm right where the culture, our culture has the same things. It's actually a secular version of uh, what Jesus said, practicing your deeds before men to be seen by them. It's the same kind of thing. It's just a secular version of it. And, um, and you know, guys, if you break the cultural norms, you will pay. There will be no gentle restoration. Our culture doesn't have that. And so very, a lot's made of religious judgmentalism, but our culture is plenty judgmental, okay? Our culture is plenty angry and intolerant and condemning without religion. And that's because judgmentalism, guys, is not a religious problem. It's a human problem. It's a human problem, right? We, it's a sin problem that we all have. But guys, the gospel frees us from judgmentalism. The gospel shows us the depth of our own sin. The gospel shows us that every day we stand in grace, right? Every day we're sinning. God's receiving us. We're standing in grace. And the gospel shows us that there's no sin that we are incapable of falling into, right? Judgmental person thinks like, you did that? You did that? You're a Christian. How could you? We know how we could. Right? We know that there's no sin that we couldn't fall into if given the right or wrong circumstances, however you want to put it. You know, that if we let our heart go for a certain amount of time and we were put in the wrong, you know, we had the wrong circumstances, we could fall into anything. The gospel shows us that to give grace because of that, right? Um, I I think that's what's going on in verse one, where he says, Keep watch over yourself, you who are going to restore a person, keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. You could think about this two ways. You could say, well, maybe the sin I would be tempted with when I'm restoring a brother or sister is the same sin they're in. And I think that's possible. The other possibility is he's talking about not being tempted to self-righteousness and doing it. And if you look at the context, the context of this passage is mostly about pride. I think that he's saying there is to, take, uh, to be careful lest you be tempted by the sin of pride. Be tempted by the sin of self-righteousness because I don't know if you've been here, but you know if somebody's fallen into sin and they reach out to you, um, sometimes you can take a little too much pleasure in helping, right? There's a prideful like I'm the sage, I'm going to help you. You know I'd never fall into that, but I'm so good I'm here, kind of a thing, right? We need to come humbly. We humbly restore them because guys, we know how deceptive sin is, right? We know how deceptive sin is. We know how it lies. We know how prone we are to believe sin's lies. We're not shocked. We're not shocked when somebody in the church, you know, falls into some sort of sin. It's not shocking to us. And we can't be self-righteous about it either, but we want to move in gently to help free them from that trap. And we do need help. What's really cool about the gospel is that it has that high standard of the law of Christ and yet has an equally high standard of gentleness and understanding. I just love that. Because it's not that we want to be the church to see somebody caught in sin and you go like, not my problem. Or you go like, eh, it's fine, it'll work itself out. No, that's not loving. The person's caught in a trap, they need help. You know, but we also want to be the type that gently restore. And this is a very uncommon response among the religious. It's a very uncommon response in our secular culture. But you know what, guys? It is not rare in a gospel-shaped church. It's not rare. It's not rare here. It's surprising how much people will um, not be caught by somebody, but come to somebody and say, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm stuck in. I need your help here. 
tried figuring this out on my own and I can't. And for the other person, brother, sister, go like, totally get that. Let's get to work. You know, that's the way it should be. And that's really, by God's grace, that's the way it is. I mean, that's what I see. It's awesome. Very uncommon, but not uncommon when we're shaped by the gospel. The gospel gives us the highest possible standard, which is the law of Christ, and the greatest gentleness to those who fail it, which is super cool, super exciting. Years ago, a friend of mine was caught in a scandalous sin, and it was the kind of sin that, you know, you end up reading about him online, and many people did. And um, before the news of that whole thing broke, he had lots of friends, lots of people he called friends that were both Christians and non-Christians. And it was really interesting. We were talking about his experience and the fallout of that, of everybody knowing this scandalous sin that he did. And he said this to me. He goes, you know, Eric, um, you know, people are always saying how Christians are judgmental, but they were the only ones interested in restoring me. It was only in the church that he could go where everybody in the valley knew what he had done. The only safe place for him was in the church. It was only in the church that we said, you know what? Okay, you know, come on in. We're going to meet up with you. We're going to, you know, spend some time with you, help you get on track, not just, you know, figure out what went wrong here, you know, and move forward. And, and it was just such a cool testimony, guys. So as a community shaped by the gospel, we value humility over pride and grace instead of judgmentalism. And the third, we value burden-bearing, not isolation. What's really neat about this passage is in two places, Paul addresses them as a family. Look at verse 2. He says uh, the word there, uh, Adelphoi, the Greek word is brothers and sisters. So brothers and sisters, he calls them in verse 2. And then in verse 10, he calls them the household of faith. And Paul loves this idea of calling the church a family. So because we've been adopted by God the Father, we have been born again into a family with brothers and sisters. And so the church is a family. And unfortunately, last few decades, the church has been treated as a corporation. The church has been treated as a, you know, all kinds of different things. But the church is really actually a family. Church like ours is a family. When you find a church to be a part of, you've, you've joined a family. And the gospel is really cool because it draws us out of isolation and puts us in a family where we go, okay, you know, like, I don't know all of you yet, but I want to know you, and I don't know how this is all going to work out, but we're just going to do this together, right? We're going to do this together as a family. The gospel draws us out of isolation. Guys, our culture, in our culture, isolation is the norm. And I don't know if you can feel it, but it's here, okay? We're isolated in our entertainment. I mean, the entertainment we want all comes into our homes. We don't have to go out for it. A lot of people don't go out for it. Um, even if it's a new movie, they'll stream it illegally online. I mean, people don't go outside for entertainment. They, they're in their homes for entertainment. They're in their homes for shopping. It used to be you go shopping, you go somewhere. I get everything on Amazon. I don't know about you guys. Amazon Prime, stuff's coming every day, right? Normal stuff like soap, you know, <laughs> like stuff I could go get, you know. It comes to the door. We're isolated um, in, in our area of, of, of shopping. You know, we used to have to kind of rely on other people more. Um, we're isolated in social media which is a relationship placebo where you could be completely isolated from people and they just kind of look through their stuff and feel like you connected and you didn't, right? It's a relationship placebo. Um, we're isolated with our phones in general. I mean, anytime we want, if we do venture out, we can form like a little bubble, you know, kind of like Dr. Strange would make those like bubbles of time. We make this like bubble by putting our phone out. It's like, I don't have any obligation to talk to you because you can see I'm looking at my phone, right? There's a bubble that we all form. So all these little bubbles around. And you have places that like coffee shops and stuff like that, which if you go back in the day and, you know, in France or wherever they came from, people get there and talk, right? They're not there to talk, right? They're all in their bubble. We do this. You know, you see this at parties and stuff like that. You know, take a few pictures, talk to people, and then the rest of the time on your phones. And then when we do make face-to-face -face plans, how easy is it to cancel them? 
A lot easier than it used to be. Send you a last-minute text message. Hey, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I'm like, well, it started 20 minutes ago. Like, what do you mean you don't think you're going to make it? You're letting me down easy? Like, what's going on here? You know, that kind of a thing, right? So it's a culture of isolation, guys. That's what's happening. It's an isolating culture. And we're all part of it, and we're all sucked into it to one degree. So it's not like I'm pointing this at you. We're all affected by it. It's a stream of isolation. It's a river you're in, and you would have to swim against it. It's going to take a ton of effort to not be isolated in our culture. It's, it's built for that. So what does it practically look like for us Not to live in isolation, but to live in a family together. And it's in verse 2. Look at it. Bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. It's bearing one another's burdens. How can I tell if I have been drawn out of cultural isolation and I'm now living in this family? And the way you would know is you're you're bearing other people's burdens and they're bearing yours. That's how you'd know. The funny thing about a burden is you have to get near a person to do it. You know? Like if Johnny and I are going to bear a sofa... I have to get near him, right? This thing maybe six feet long. I have to be within six feet or something like that. I cannot bear that burden by liking it on Facebook. Okay, I see a sofa like that. You know, right? No, I have to get close to him, and that's what burden bearing is. We have to relationally get close to each other to be able to bear each other's burdens. We have to both get up under it together. You have to be near each other to bear another person's burdens. And, you know, what are the steps to this? I know this sounds elementary. Um, Stay for a while after service. So we got the place till noon, and a lot of people do this already. It's strange and wonderful. But you stay, you talk with people, you maybe get their phone number, maybe you go out to lunch. Uh, not with me, by the way, I feel very connected, okay? But you grab somebody here that you think might not be, and you take them out to lunch, you get their phone number, you know, you make some plans for dinner or coffee or something like that. I know it sounds silly that I would even tell you, but guys, would you agree that adult friendships take a lot more effort than childhood friendships took? Adult friendships are very difficult to do. I saw this thing on Twitter. This is the greatest. It says, somebody said, nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. We could say probably there were 11. But that was a miracle, right? Like he has like a dozen close friends. That takes effort. That's something we got to actually go after. And I, I was talking to Sabo about this a couple months ago, but we were talking about community. And when we talk about community, that's vague. Let's talk about friendship. Let's talk about burden bearing together. He goes, you got to tell them it's hard. You just be up front. It's hard. You would actually have to push because the whole culture is pushing you towards isolation. I love that, though. Isn't that awesome? Nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. It's awesome. But there was one that we wouldn't really count. Being an authentic church family, guys, takes a lot of effort. whole culture is against it, um, but it can be done. And there's so many of you who are here that I'm looking at as I'm looking out that are good examples to me of this. I watch you guys. I watch you like connect with people and know people. You know, I'm thinking about Debbie, and she was, we were talking the other day, and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, I met so-and-so. Did you know she was born on Christmas? And I'm like, what? You know, like she has like all this information. I'm like, how do you even get stuff like that, right? How did that even come up, you know? Or Ed's really like that. Ed's met everybody, and he's like constantly, you know, meeting up when people want to see people, and it's just super cool to see. Now, if you don't know who Debbie or Ed are, that's your start, okay? That's your start, right? Being an authentic church family, guys, can it take effort. It's, and, and we're going to need to push in to do it. But, guys, there is a lot of it happening right now. There's a lot of burden bearing going on in this church. It's really cool. Somebody has a health issue. Somebody has something. People at the hospital. People are ready. People are ready to help. If you're not currently experiencing this, you know what it means? It just means that it's going to take some extra steps for you to actually get closer to people here. You won't feel your burdens born, I guess, Or you won't be bearing other people's burdens unless you get close to people. 
Okay? And one of the common things that people say when they leave a church like ours is the main thing they're going to say is not, you know, we just hate how you change direction because we don't. Um, you know, we just hate how you did this new thing. Like, if you're, you're going to leave bored, okay? We're not going to do anything crazy. We're not going to have some change of direction, some weird thing come in. Like, this is what we're doing, just so you know. We're going through the Bible. This is it, okay? But what people leave for is they leave, they say, I just don't feel connected. By far, I just don't feel connected. What are they saying? I don't have friends here. And what I want to say to you before you're there is this is going to take a ton of effort on your part, and it's not because of us, and it's not because of you. It's because you live in a culture of isolation. And so when, when you say, I just don't feel connected here, you're saying basically the culture took me under. You know, that rip current of isolation sucked me in. I was having a conversation with a friend just a couple weeks ago, and he was talking to me. He was like, hey, I'm thinking about changing churches. He doesn't go to our church, but another church. He says, I'm thinking about changing churches, and I go, what's going on? As I talked to him, what he really wanted is friends. He really wants friends. And his thought is, well, you know, if I go over there, I'll probably find some. And I just said to him, I said, you know, and then I said, who do you already know that you want to make your friend? I know that sounds bizarre. You have to do this, okay? Who, what's going to be your human that you're going to interface with? Who is this person? And he's all, you know what? Everybody's just so busy. You know what I said to him? No, they're not. They're not. You're not. Seriously, you're not, okay? You're not busy. And he was like kind of surprised. And I said, you know, I kind of want to do this, bring a little index card. I wanted you guys to write down your daily log, okay? How many hours a day do you look at your phone, right? How many hours a day? For most people, it's anywhere in two to four hours a day looking at their phone, probably two hours of social media. How, how many hours a day do you play games? And I don't just mean like the kid on the Xbox, but, you know, you got your game on your phone, right? How many hours a day are you, are you watching Netflix? And none of those things, I don't have a problem with any of those things. I'm just saying that we need to be honest, we're not busy. We're distracted, right? You're not busy, you're distracted, almost all of you. And there's occasionally an exception, like Dustin, who's not here right now, is a cop, like, he's busy. The rest of you guys are. <laughs> this guy's busy right here. <laughs> Ryan Schock is a busy man, okay? That's a busy man that would love to connect with more people. But most of you guys, I know you, you're distracted, right? We're distracted. It's a culture of isolation, and it's sucking us in. And so what keeps us from being a family and bearing burdens together? Distraction would be one, but Paul also mentions this, pride. Take a look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then what's the next word? For, okay, it connects. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. What is he saying? Pride's keeping us from bearing one another's burdens. Pride's keeping us from connecting. Pride's keeping us from getting closer. And it can sound like this, and I know I'm getting into your business a lot this morning, but that's just the way it is. Some Sundays are like that. Um, it can sound like this. You know, I just don't click with anyone here. Or, you know, saying something like, um, I, just, I just can't connect with anyone here. Um, let me submit to you, and I'm trying to do this as humbly as I can, that that might be a way of saying no one here measures up to my standards. Seriously. Really? I mean, come on. Right? I don't click with anyone here. There's nobody like me. You know, I can't connect with anybody here. What we're really saying is there's no one here that measures up to my standards. Okay? Because what, Paul, what, what pride does is pride makes us think that we're unique and that we're incompatible and that we don't need other people. Pride does that. It isolates us. So there's a culture, but there's something inside of us too. So what's the solution to the barrier of pride? Look at verse 2 again. 
Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then look at the next connecting word. But. So this is a solution, right? But let each one test his own work, and then he will have reason to boast. Uh, his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will bear his own load. Okay, this looks like a bit of a contradiction. He says, bear one of those burdens, and he goes, you've got to bear your own load. Okay, like, seems like a contradiction. But your Bible probably translates those two words differently because they're actually different Greek words, okay? There's burden and load. Burden is something you need multiple people to carry. It's something that, like, will fall on you and crush you unless somebody comes up and helps you. Load is like a backpack, okay? Load is something, it's got some weight to it, but you can, you can carry it. And what Paul's doing here is he wants to humble us and draw us in together as a family by reminding us that each one of us have a load, a weight of responsibility that God's given us that we're responsible to him for. That actually one day we will appear before Christ, not for, if you're a believer, not for judgment, hell, or heaven, but for an accounting of what you've done with your load. We've each been given a load, a weight of responsibility, and we'll answer for that before Christ. We've all been given a set of gifts, We've all been given a set of opportunities. We've all been given a set of advantages. And those things will be accountable for how we use them. We've all been given um, certain family connections that we are responsible for, that we'll answer for. We've been given neighbors that have been placed next to us for a reason. We've been placed next to them. We've all been given friends. We've all been given work callings. And we're going to stand before the Lord one day and answer for how we did with those. You know, Not for heaven or hell, but there's going to be an assessment. There's going to be assessment. Guys, that should humble us. Do you feel humbled right now? Do you feel ready for the examination? <laughs> Does anybody go like, I'll take mine now? It's like, no, like, give me a little more time. I forgot, you know, right? It humbles us. And you know what it does when it humbles us? It, it, it frees us from comparison because now I'm not like comparing myself to you. I'm thinking, well, like I got my own load I got to consider before the Lord. And it humbles us because we think, man, maybe I do need a church body. Maybe I do need the help of the body. Maybe I do need this church family. Maybe this burden sharing thing is a really good idea. <laughs> you know, maybe I do need people that are very different than me to spur me on and encourage me in the load that God's given me. And so um, we, we're humbled by that and we're, we're pushed in as a community and decide to actually bear one another's burdens and spur one another along. Okay, now I have a verse here. This is weird. Verse six seems to jump out of nowhere. And initially, I was like, leave it out because it doesn't fit, and it's making a pretty thing, and they have alliteration. But, you know, I had four points, and so this jumps out of nowhere. It's like you're driving, and you're like, whoa, you know? Verse 6 says this. Let the one who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Paul here seems to be talking about paying those who teach the word, right? Sharing in all good things with him who teaches. Um, Paul himself, it's interesting, a lot of times he didn't take a salary when he would plan a church. But then when he left and he set up pastors, he'd be like, pay those guys. Isn't that interesting? He would come in, plan it, and he'd say, pay those guys, right? And that's what he's doing right here. And it makes sense that if the church's health is based on how much we stay centered on the gospel, centered on the word, then it makes sense that we prioritize that ministry and, and pay that ministry, right? And so um, it, the health of the church is dependent on this. And by the way, this is not awkward to me. The reason I was going to leave it out is not because it's awkward to me. I don't make my living doing this. I make my living as a horse vet and being attacked by horses. I'm lucky to even be here, okay? But it shouldn't be awkward either for those who do, right? It should never be awkward for them to talk about it because you know what's interesting here? Paul doesn't call it a payment, does he? He doesn't say make a payment to those who preach the word. What does it say? What's the word? Open book. What's the word? 
Starts with an S. Okay, share. Good. Okay. Just want to make sure. He calls it sharing. Isn't that interesting? Because we're not a collective of consumers and, and, and providers. We're a family. It's about sharing. And so this verse actually does relate to the rest because it relates in burden bearing. So you have some people in the body that they carry the burden of, of praying and preparing and studying and teaching, and they'll, bear, they'll carry that burden. And then others will come along and bear a burden of working and, and supporting that. It's about burden sharing. It's about um, supporting one another, bearing one another's burdens. Okay, so there's one more thing in this text, though, that keeps us from bearing one another's burdens. We saw distraction. We saw pride. The other one, guys, and you relate to this, is weariness. Ever just get weary? Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Paul uses this wonderful agricultural metaphor of sowing. It's really interesting. I think it's super interesting. He says you can sow the spirit, you can sow the flesh. And, um, and, and the sowing is obviously, mean, maybe you don't know, sowing is putting seeds in the ground. Okay, So you take a seed, you put it in the dirt, and you're careful of which dirt you put your seeds in, right? Especially if you're a farmer and you have your seeds left over from last year, you can just throw them anywhere. And he's saying those seeds are like the packets of your life the little bits of your life in all their ways. And he says you can take those and you can like push them into the flesh and see what grows. Or you can put them in the spirit and you can see what grows. And so the flesh and the spirit are depicted as two different kinds of soil here. And the seeds are the units of your life. And, and different things will spring up from either one. And guys, this reminds us, and I think this is a very practical thing, because he says don't be deceived, God's not mocked. This is a great reminder to us that we can't think that we've given God our lives if we're putting all the seeds of our life in the flesh, right? It's real practical. It's like every day you got a bag of life. you got a bag of seeds. And you can put them into the spirit. You can put them into the flesh. If your pattern is to put all of them into the flesh, it's, it should be super hard for you to think or to say or to believe or to be deceived and think, I've given the Lord my life. Well, you didn't give him your life if you're giving all the little packets of your life to the flesh, right? you got to be honest about that because your, your life is made up of those seeds. And, and Paul isn't like suddenly teaching salvation by works here, but he's saying that a person who sows all the individual seeds of their life into the flesh shouldn't be deceived or think they're fooling God somehow by saying, oh, Lord, you have my life, and then it's like seed in the flesh, seed in the flesh, seed in the flesh, seed in the flesh. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing there. But here's the exciting thing for you guys who trust in Christ those of you who are here who trust in Christ, is that you can sow, invest the seeds of your life into the Holy Spirit. Like you could take all the little things God's given you and you can sow them or plant them in the soil of the Holy Spirit and see what he can produce. You can endow the portions of your life with the power of the Holy Spirit. Every day we have that choice. And so we have things like time and attention and money and abilities and we can either use them for the flesh or we can use them for the Spirit. We could implant them into the seed of God himself, the Holy Spirit, right? And so I just ask you, where are you sowing the seeds, the little packets of your life, you know? Are you sowing them into the flesh, into the sinful desires of the flesh? We read about it last week. It's not a pretty list. Like, those are the things you get when you sow to uh, the flesh. Or are you sowing them into the seed of the Holy Spirit and seeing what he can produce with them? Guys, we're going to be blown away by what our little seeds do when we give them to God. 
We're going to be amazed, guys. I just think one of the things, you know, I don't think there's regret in heaven. Maybe there's a brief regret, you know, before it all really gets started. But I just feel like when we see the return there is on the little things that we do where we trust in Christ and we push ourselves out there, we're going to be like, I should have done more of it. You know, it's like you bought like, you know, two shares of stock in Apple 20 years ago. And you're like, yeah, I'm glad I made that. But like, why didn't I invest more? You know, he's saying we can plant. Just like a little seed produces a huge tree, we're going to be blown away by what God does in the world to come through the things we invest. And so I just think about you, the seeds of your life. You have seeds of time. Let's just think about your time. I already told you you're not busy. I don't know if you wanted to hear that or not. You're distracted, okay? Think about what sowing 20 minutes in undistracted prayer will do in the kingdom. 20 minutes. You say, some of you are like, I do three hours. Okay, cool. Like, you know, I'm not going to start there with you guys. I'm going to say 20 minutes. And I was intentional to say undistracted. Your phone doesn't come, okay? Actually, what you could do, because a lot of people are nervous, because you all think you're like firemen or heart surgeons or something, you need to be contacted at any moment, set a timer. Set the timer for 20 minutes on your phone. Turn it over. It's going to go off when 20 minutes are over. And I'll tell you what, no one will die in that 20 minutes that you could save while that 20 minutes is going. And you just undistractedly pray. I actually think we need those baby steps. Wayne's always surprised about this. Trust me, they need it, okay? <laughs> Wayne's like, not me. Yeah, all of them though, okay? 20 minutes of undistracted time in the Word. Same thing, set a timer. Do, do 20 minutes. You say, well, I don't want to put limits on. It seems artificial. Well, you're not doing it now. Like, this would be a good start, right? Um, 20 minutes of encouraging a brother or sister every day. You know what this adds up to? If you do 20 minutes a, a day, it's 120 hours a year. It's five 24-hour days. That's awesome, you know? We could sow that. Think of what 20 minutes a day encouraging a brother or sister. You could do that on the phone. You do that while your kids are having nap time. You could do that on the way to work, away home from work, and, and sow that in. Well, we're going to be amazed what God would do that. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to want more of it. You're going to want more of it. Um, what about this? What will God do if we plant the seeds of our money in the soul of the Holy Spirit? I was just thinking about this. What if we were to put $2 a day to missions? Could you afford $2 a day? Do you ever buy a $2 drink and not think anything of it? Right, all the time, right? $2, right? This is something that we could do. I was, Lorian, our sister Lorian, who's going to the Middle East, and um, I can tell you the exact location if you ask me afterwards, but she's going to go help translate the Bible to an unreached people group. This isn't like a summer trip kind of thing. This is like she goes for years, dangerous place, Middle East, somewhere where she can translate the Bible for unreached people groups. Do you realize if 10 of us said, you know what, I could, I could, do, I could, I could sew $2 a day, if we did that, um, she needs $600 more to go there. If 10 of us did it, she's gone. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's just amazing. And just think of like, you know, Jesus talked about um, taking the unrighteous mammon of the world and, and that if we use it, that we will be welcome in eternal habitations. That somehow when we come in, in the kingdom and, and we're there in the world to come, that we're going to be welcomed by people that, you know, we were a part of them hearing the gospel. People you don't know. People that don't speak a language like you because you sowed those seeds. I just say, man, investing your seeds is where you invest your life. He says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So let us, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Paul's saying that there's no better investment for those seeds than sowing them into his family, his people. 
Um, the gospel makes us sons and daughters of the Father, uh, draws us out of isolation, makes us a family. We bear burdens together. We invest the seeds of our life in what he's doing. Don't give up. Don't give up. You guys who are parents and you're sowing these seeds into your kids, you know, and you're teaching them the word and they don't listen. It's craziness. Or, you know, you dads are at the dinner table and you're like, okay, I'm going to take a risk here and bring the Bible out. And it went crazy. You know, you are sowing seeds in your kids. You are praying over your kids. You are serving your kids. You are serving your neighbors. You're serving people here. Don't give up. You guys, it, the, the, he says, we're going to reap if we don't grow weary. It's going to be so worth it. So lastly, as a community shaped by the gospel, we boast in God's work, not ours. This relates, right? Paul gets really personal. Look at verse 11. I like this one. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He's like, what's going on here? Well, usually there was a scribe. They called it a menuensis, a, a scribe, a person that would write letters for him. So he's dictating it to him. And, and what most people say is that right here, he's taking the pen and he's writing himself. And he's apparently writing in like 12-point font in all caps, you know? Like he's like, see what, what large, probably ugly letters he's writing. There have different theories on what this is. Some people say, well, it's his eye problem, and he's writing big because you have eye problems. You guys have eye problems? You're probably like, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe it was for emphasis. Some people believe that. Um, maybe it was just, um, you know, people say maybe Paul didn't have good handwriting. I don't think that's it. It's probably one of those two. It's either his eye problems or emphasis. But Paul wants to draw a clear distinction between the legalistic teachers and what they boast in, they've come and they said, oh yeah, you think you're in God's family, but you need to get circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses. You need to do all these things to be really in God's family. And, and he wants to draw a clear distinction between what they boast in and what he boasts in. Look at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who force you to be circumcised and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves even keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to it. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but the new creation. It's really cool because these false teachers, they were, um, they were boasting in what human beings could do. They were boasting in if they could come to town and they could convince people to start keeping the law of Moses and get circumcised, then they're like, we killed it there. You know, they're boasting in what human beings can do. And if they could get these new Gentile converts to do that, then that's a win. And Paul's just saying, you know what? These are merely human things. Anyone could come down and manipulate people into externally doing different changes and stuff. And he's saying they just don't want to be persecuted. Because they're peddling a religion where you do good works, you earn heaven, you feel pretty good about yourself. You won't get persecuted if you do that. What you'll get persecuted for is the cross. The cross is offensive. The cross says that I'm so sinful that Jesus had to die for me to be rescued. And I love what Paul does here in verse uh, 13. He says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised so they might boast in your flesh. Paul's saying, I don't see why you boast in your ministry. You only change people on the outside. Like, okay, you got the dude's foreskin off and you got him keeping some dietary laws. Like, big deal. You know, Paul's saying, they don't even keep the law. So you didn't change the heart. The false teachers measured their success on the number of foreskins they removed. Right? But Paul here, he has a different standard of success. His standard of success is he only feels like there was a success there if it was something that only God could do. And I think we need to measure our ministry that way together, right? 
The only thing we should really feel excited about is when we see something that only God could do. Because there's a ton of things that church can do themselves. Right? I won't go through the list. You've all seen it. There's tons of things that can be done that are works of the flesh, that are just things that we do ourselves, that didn't need God's divine enablement. What, what Paul says is that he says that the Spirit was actually giving them and gives us something that the Old Testament circumcision only illustrated. And this is interesting. What did, what did circumcision illustrate in the Old Testament? Take a look at Deuteronomy 10.16. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 10.16 says, You'll find this really interesting. This is in the law. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn. What did it symbolize? It symbolized a change of heart, right? Um, in Jeremiah 4.4, 4, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. So in the Old Testament, circumcision actually illustrated something to happen to the heart. It wasn't about cutting a piece of tissue off your body. It was about cutting fleshly desires out of your heart. It was about something supernatural. It was about removing fleshly sinful desires. And that's why in Romans 2, he says, For one, uh, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So here you have Paul himself, a Jew, this is anti-Semitic, this is Jewish Paul, saying that those who are truly Jews are in God's sight are the ones whom the flesh of their heart is being cut out. It's not about the outside. And, and that's kind of what explains Paul's really interesting blessing. Look at verse 15. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Then what does he say? But a new creation, heart transfer, real circumcision of the heart. And then he says this, And as for all those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy beyond them, and what? And upon the Israel of God. You're like, what's that about? You know? In the context, what that's about is there is an Israel that's not marked by physical circumcision, but marked by a cutting away of fleshly desires in the heart. There is a spiritual body of people. And what's really cool is um, we're going to do a series starting next week. We're going to go through the Old Testament. We're going to look at people that were saved by grace, that knew the same Lord we know, that, that were saved the same way we're saved. They were adopted into God's family, but they lived in the Old Testament. We're going to look through that. There, there are people that were this kind of Israel. They, it wasn't external. It was internal as well. So we're going to do a series on that through the summer which should be really good. But the Spirit, guys, gives us what circumcision could only illustrate. And this is a direct attack on those false teachers. He's saying, okay, you came to town, you got some people circumcised, big deal. The gospel changes the heart. The gospel transforms you from the inside. He's like, I'm not sure what you're boasting about. Your religion conforms the outside of people. Anyone can do that. My God changes people's hearts. Look at verse 14. I love this. This is a great verse. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So, you know, guys, let's not ever judge success and things that should be boasted about and what human beings can do. Let's boast about what the Lord does through the cross and the way he changes the inside of the heart. Let's boast in God's work, not ours. Because there is a boasting. There is a bra you, You've been given the ability to brag for a reason. Bragging was like, like the biggest sin in our family growing up, okay? We weren't believers at the time. My parents were believers. But it was like, if my mom caught a wind of bragging, like she'd say about my friend, hey, can I have so-and-so over? That dude's a bragger, right? It was just like, no bragging. We were given bragging or boasting for a reason. It's to boast in God. We're supposed to brag about him. You been bragging about him lately? Brag about him. Boast about him. Take pride in him. You don't take pride in yourself. What other message, guys? 
What other purpose, what other cause do you want to give your life for? Every little seed. Every little seed you can. Every little seed of time. Every little seed of abilities, Lord. It is something that we want to give out for the kingdom. We want to plant it in the spirit so that he can do these kind of works. Let's pray. Father, we're super thankful for this book of Galatians. And, um, and we'll certainly be back. Um, love it. We love what you've done in us through this. I feel like, you know, as I was praying earlier, I feel like I've learned so much from this, uh, this trip through. And uh, Lord, I know that there's so much more for me and for us to learn and to apply. I thank you for this body of believers who have truly been shaped by the gospel, Lord. Um, you know that as I was prepping this and thinking through this, I could just think of dozens of examples of people in our church living this out well. And that is your work. That is something you've done in their hearts. And it encourages me so much, Lord. I feel like I have so much more um, faith in and belief in the church than I had years ago. And it's because of what you've done for these people. And so I pray, Lord, help us not grow weary. Help us not be prideful. Help us not be distracted. Help, Help us to give our all, Lord, which is really just gifts of yours back to you and see what you do, Lord. We want to make our full boast in you. And help us not be silent. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.